Pyre is the third game by Supergiant, a studio known for their games that lean on the side of the artistic, the emotional, and the experimental. Pyre is a game about friendship and feedback loops. We'll be talking about it today. Hi! Welcome to Game Anatomy, a podcast about game design and the industry. I'm your host, Alec Brown, your friendly neighborhood games enthusiast. So, what is Pyre? Pyre is the fusion of a bunch of different elements that come together to make something quite unique that is at times beautiful and at worst just kind of odd in a way you can't quite put your finger on. Let's go through it. Big spoilers for the game, by the way. If you plan on playing it, I wouldn't recommend listening to this episode. First off, when you boot up the game, you're greeted by this. A pile of burning books set to somber harpsichord music. And then the game begins. You start in a ravine between two large cliffs that open up to a barren desert. You start to hear something rattling and eventually a wagon rolls up in front of you. And out spills three individuals all cloaked in blue and gold, and wearing intimidating white masks that exaggerate the features that lay beneath. One is a demon named Rodariel, with thick horns curling around her face like that of an ox. The second is Hedwin, a scruffy man with a greasy bandana and a wide smile. The third is Rugi Greentail, a dog with the speech and manner of a traitor and a scoundrel. These three approach you with caution. You introduce yourself as either he, she, or they, and slowly reveal to them what you are, a reader. You're literate, and you learn that you've been exiled into this wasteland known as the Downside. Headwind bandages your injuries, and they tell you what this is all about as they bring you into their wagon. They own a Book of Rites, a tome detailing the mystical way of escaping this place, where all of the criminals of the tyrannical commonwealth go. You're one of them, but you're the only one that can read this book and initiate this process of liberation. The book sparkles, grabbing your attention, and it opens up to reveal. Reader! Dare you tamper with forbidden knowledge? So soon after your sentence into exile, tis true what the book says. You can be free again. Perhaps not you yourself, but someone worthy of the privilege. You witness now the path toward salvation. You witness the rights, the one way to return to glory. Though in your case, I hardly think it possible. Your three companions appear on top of an arena floating in a void of blank pages and cascades of colorful paint. You are looking down on them, as well as the three other ghastly individuals who appear on the other side. And the match begins. You command your three companions to grab hold of the orb at the center of the stage and dunk it into the opponent's flame, dowsing it until it's extinguished. The trick is, is that each team can only move one person at a time, so the match becomes this tense competition of juggling the ball between party members and trying not to get them banished, which is where someone gets hit and has to stay out for a few seconds. 
Pyre continues as a hybrid of visual novel, competitive sport, and point-and-click adventure game as you journey across the downside, seeking competitors against the Nightwings, which is your team. Every match is found by first looking to the stars and seeing which is lit up, and then following that to the corpse of a fallen giant, where you meet another team that you face. Every match you play drives you further, further north, across barren desert, acidic bog, frozen ocean, and volcanic wasteland. Along your journey, you meet more and more people who join your team. You get to know each and every one, and these are some of the best written characters I have ever seen. You finally come face to face with a character named Sandalwood, a mysterious man who has a plan to free the Nightwings from the downside and take down the Commonwealth who burns books and destroys knowledge, and they see literacy as a crime, the one you were banished for. And although he's not a Nightwing, I have to say that I very much enjoyed interacting with the voice, who gets more and more antagonistic as the game goes on. I would tell you to turn back, cast down your hope, but all those such as you, you never listen. And this all comes to a head when you finally reach Mount Elodiel. You climb to the summit of this mountain, coated in ruined temples, cathedrals, and stained glass, to find that the minstrel in your wagon, who never competed in any of the rites, has a counterpart, a woman with golden wings that questions every member before they can pass through the gate to the grand arena on the mountain peak about why they are there and why they deserve freedom. As the minstrels take their place above the stage, another team once again appears on the other side, and it's revealed that you may choose one person from your team that will go free tonight depending on who wins. And when one team wins, that team's chosen member is bathed in a pool of shimmering light, and they fall in an upwards running waterfall, rising to the heavens. They say their farewells, and are never seen again, except for a few letters that come from them, while they're in the Commonwealth. So, after you finish that first liberation rite, the stars light up again, and you go out across the country to challenge other teams until the next one, and the cycle repeats. No matter if you lose or win a match, the game continues, as do your relationships with your rivals and companions. Every liberation rite concludes a kind of mini-arc with a character, as you might see a Nightwing's lifelong rival be liberated right in front of them, or even siblings separated by this process. Oh, and did I mention the music? The soundtrack by Darren Korb adapts in every match depending on who is speaking or who is moving in a right. This sounds amazing, right? Romantic? Epic? And while the game certainly is those things, I can't help but shake the dissonance that the game itself has with its story. If you want to get fancy, we can bust out the term ludonarrative dissonance, but that word has been used so frequently in essays like this that I don't even know if I'm using it correctly anymore. I think that the main reason for this dissonant feeling is that the game is covered in feedback loops that contradict the narrative. If you're unfamiliar, a feedback loop is where the output of a system is placed back into that system as input in a loop. In a positive feedback loop, the change of an output is accelerated and the system becomes increasingly unstable. RPG progression is a good example of this. As you level up, you get better and better at the area you're in until the enemies there are trivial. You're rewarded for doing well, so you do better. Developers usually deal with this issue by adding a negative feedback loop, 
where that area no longer gives adequate rewards to justify staying there. You must move on to the next area where the cycle repeats. A negative feedback loop is such that the system outputs a result that keeps itself stable, punishing wins and rewarding losses. This would be like if you leveled up in Skyrim and immediately had five random items removed from your inventory. The stability of the system has remained the same, and this can be very useful in game design. It's particularly useful in multiplayer games so that people who start losing don't always lose, and people who gain an advantage don't just keep winning, and this prevents the game from becoming a boring chore for both parties. The penultimate example of this, as mentioned in Mark Brown's video on the subject, which I would highly recommend you watch, is Mario Kart, where racers in first place routinely get lousy items like banana peels and green shells, while racers in last get the most powerful ones like bullet bills. This keeps the game exciting and tense, and makes it so that the whole match can change on a dime. Pyre does some very interesting things with this. What I would call the micro-cycle of this game, which is you playing against another team of exiles in a right, has you leveling up the Nightwings that you used in that match whether you win or lose, making them more powerful in future matches. This is a positive feedback loop. You win, get more powerful, and keep winning. However, this is paired with a negative feedback loop that lies in the right's rules, where if a Nightwing scores the ball, they disappear from the match until someone from either team scores again. You have won and lost at the same time, and it keeps both teams from steamrolling the other. There were countless times, especially near the end of the game, where I would actually count on the enemy team losing their best member to get my chance to score. That same pairing between positive and negative goes for what I would call the macro cycle of the game. When you get a Nightwing to a certain level, they get the privilege of being eligible for a liberation right in addition to their powerful abilities. So when you progress to a point where, say, Jodariel has the ability to banish opponents for a few seconds longer, has a massive aura that she can banish people with, and can jump twice in quick succession, she may also be the only one on your team that you can liberate when the stars align. You have won and lost at the same time. This keeps the game from being boring as you curb stomp your opponents with a team of three fully leveled juggernauts, and it keeps you from only playing the same three Nightwings over and over, because you lose them forever. Every match in the game is tense and exciting as a result, especially towards the end when the enemy teams get just as powerful, if not more so, than you are. But I think that all of this actually damages the narrative that the game is trying to tell. See, Pyre plays itself as a kind of visual novel, where you develop friendships with your comrades, but you know what eventually happens. The main objective of the game is to lose in a battle of attrition, where you have to say goodbye to your friends one by one. And what ends up happening is that you start to hold some of your companions from leaving, preventing them from liberation based on their mechanical worth and level, not how much you really like them as a character. Why? because you want to keep liberating your companions. Are you going to let that level 5 Nightwing go if it means liberating your other companions will be that much harder without them? The way I played was that I leveled up Jodariel all the way and had her essentially escort her friends to freedom as she was supremely powerful by the end. Maybe not everyone plays that way, but it seemed to make the most sense to me. And guess what happens at the end of the game? The stars wink out, and the last two party members are left behind. The liberation rites come to a close. Since every liberation rite is a desperate struggle with permanent consequences for the story, this doesn't encourage story. As such, friendships don't quite grow in the game. They last. You're left reading dialogue from your companions as they dote over you 
and tell you about their character while constantly debating who to keep, who to leave, and who you should train in each match because only three can compete at a time. Though every match is an amazingly tense fight that changes and shifts with every score, I can never quite shake the feeling that I was doing it all for nothing. I was never getting better, and the stakes seemed to always be the same. I began to ask myself what the point of the game really was. Was it to simulate losing friends one by one? Was it supposed to be a sports game? A tale of a band of friends going through life together? Nothing pointed to an obvious answer. And I think that the world building was a big part of this issue for me. See, the goal of the game is to succeed in that plan to take down the Commonwealth, as I mentioned before. The problem is, is that we have no idea what the Commonwealth is, or why it deserves to fall. We know that they burned books and sentenced everyone to exile, but that's really it. The world building in Pyre is invisible, as compared to their other games, where the world is this amazingly interactive set piece that is always integral to the story. I say invisible because although the art of the game is as beautiful as Supergiant games always are, the world serves no purpose other than being a series of arenas where the rights take place. Each is characterized by a large dead monster, but these are only important in two capacities. They show up as a difficulty setting later in the game, and their stories appear in the Book of Rights, the game's cache of worldbuilding details. I think it's fair to qualify good worldbuilding as such that it's either so intriguing as to justify its own existence, or such that it changes how the player interacts with the game, a part of the experience. A good example of this might be God of War, where you hear about a dead giant that was struck down by Thor in one moment, and after a huge lead-up, see its corpse laying across an ice field, and have to claim a piece of its chisel off of the body. I would be okay if all the world building was in the background, if it was mysterious, cryptic. But the problem comes when the expectation is set for it to be important, and this is done through the constant references that characters have to these creatures and places and events. When you have characters referring to the Commonwealth and the Titans every few lines or so, and there is no way to interact or engage with or otherwise know that thing, it comes off as not only hollow, but in a way, deceptive. This is because in narrative, the authors or creators have ultimate authority over what is presented as important and what's not in the story. All things that are present in the story, through dialogue, visuals, sound, etc., are given importance because the creators have chosen to put them into the experience. Since the creators have chosen this thing over all others, it sets up the expectation in the player's mind that it will continue to be relevant in proportion to how frequently it is mentioned or referenced, or that it will come up later. It's a simple principle of storytelling. But none of these commonly referenced things come to be in the way that they are set up because the references never translate to gameplay. It's one thing to have characters talk about something in a novel for the sake of immersion. It's another thing to have characters routinely mention something that never becomes relevant in the novel that doesn't help characterize them because you don't know what it is, as in Throne of the Crescent Moon. It's another thing entirely to do that in a video game, where the means of interfacing with the media is through interaction and not observation as it is in a written work, so the issue only compounds. From what I understand, this is what Destiny did. That game had characters constantly referencing what seemed to be a fleshed-out world, but it never explained or showed any of it, instead leaving it all to online databases. Pyre at least has all the information accessible in-game. All of the world-building sits in what fans have nicknamed the Fake Bible, the Book of Rights. You can read it if you want to stop playing the game and read lore for over an hour, 
which I did by the way, and I can confirm that though it is very well written, it doesn't add anything to the experience of playing the game because, again, it's not a part of the game. So since there was no world and no clear story, there was no clear theme, and thus the game's intention wasn't clear. When intent of a game isn't clear, readers and players don't know what to focus on, and things just kind of get messy. It would be like if Harry Potter had shown you the times where they took math and geography classes. Although relevant to the characters' lives, what does it add? It just dilutes the story and leads me astray. It's deadweight. This, on top of the frustrating feedback loops, leads to a dissonant experience. Well, that was quite a bit of a rant. Why don't we end the episode on a positive note? The journey began. I've played all of Supergiant's games, and every one of them has made you cry at the end. Pyre is no exception to that. Supergiant has this uncanny ability to pull heartstrings between the music, the art, and their fantastic character writing. No matter how much I complain about the mechanical mishaps that may or may not be in the game, the dialogue is so rich that it carries the entire story. There's something wonderfully sentimental and artistic about everything that they do. I have nothing but respect for the studio, as they're seemingly the only one nowadays willing and able to experiment wildly with their games, and to tell personal stories that get to you before you even know that they have. There's no other studio quite like Supergiant, and in an oversaturated market where every person with a calculator can make a game, they're a godsend. We sing of the last of the night wings who, having broken the cycle, shall live on in song. So, to conclude, Pyre is a more experimental game that, although flawed, can be a tremendously emotional game at times that manages to make you care and make you fight for freedom despite its challenges and sometimes saddening gameplay loop. It has good gameplay and a good story. It's just unfortunate that I at least found that the two didn't match up. If nothing else, this game is a step forward for the studio, and I can't help but think that Supergiant learns and changes from each one of its games. I wouldn't say that Pyre is a bad game by any means. I simply value storytelling, especially in video games, so that's where this essay comes from. That'll do it for our second episode of Game Anatomy. Thank you so much for listening and making it through this far. I do truly appreciate it. If you'd like to listen to more, you can find more episodes on SoundCloud and Anchor, as well as on Spotify at Game Anatomy. Thank you again for listening, and until next time, good night. <laughs>